Make sure to give my dad a five-star review. Get, make sure to like and subscribe to his YouTube. And thank you for listening and enjoy the show. show. <laughs> but for the most part, one of the uh, one of the greatest supports of marriage in our culture is among gay people. Astonishingly, most gay people want to be married. Well, hi, Faithful Politics listeners. This is your faithful host, Josh Bertram, and our political host has returned from his coup in a faraway land, and uh, Will is here. Hi, Will. Hi. How is everybody? How'd the coup go? Um, it was, um, it was a very contagious, um, environment. (laughs) Um, and, um, you know, one might say that we cuckoo, one flew over the cuckoo nest, maybe. There you go. That, that was the name of one of our podcast episodes when we talked about the insurrection of January 6th. (laughs) So we have as our guest today, uh, Dr. Luke Timothy Johnson, um, Dr. Uh, Johnson is uh, the Robert W. Woodruff Professor of New Testament and Christian Origins at Emory University's Candler School of Theology in Atlanta, Georgia. He earned a PhD in New Testament studies from Yale University, as well as an MA in Religious Studies from Indiana University, an MDiv in Theology from St. Menard School of Theology, and a BA in Philosophy from Notre Dame in New Orleans. Leans. He's written many books and done several courses on the great courses. And I've just, uh, and actually, um, Luke, I can call you Luke, correct? Of course. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being on. I feel like I need to bow and pay you homage um, or somehow, you know, after reading that list of, uh, of, of, of degrees that you have, I, I just feel like I'm not smart enough to even talk to you. Ah, uh, well, you know what they say, you can die by degrees, right? <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's true. Well, thank you so much for being on here with us today. You know, um, I was talking to someone this morning because they knew I was going to be interviewing you. And I was just talking about how much of a fan of of your work, especially in the great courses. That's the one stuff I have the most familiarity with. But I loved your course on the New Testament and I thought it was brilliant the way that you could talk to an audience that, you know, because that was made for not Christian people, not people that necessarily have faith. And the way that you particularly describe the origins of Christianity was one of the one of the most compelling um, and and just the 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 just the way that you described it was some of the best stuff I've ever heard that was catered to a secular audience Mm -hmm. that I would have no problem at all telling anyone Christian, not Christian, Muslim, Jewish, atheist to listen to. And uh, that's a big compliment because there's not very many people I would say that about. And I just, it's really cool to be able to interview you today. So thank you. um, Absolutely. But you know, on that point, what uh, if you really do a historical description of Christianity's origins, Sometimes that's heard as a kind of a faith statement, uh, mm. and and but it actually is possible to describe what the first Christians believed and were convinced of yes. in historical terms. And it, 
Um, and it's possible to do that in the same way that you could describe the origins of Islam in historical terms without making a faith claim in Muhammad. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, I, I think we do get kind of caught up. Um, you know, I'm a pastor and, and, and Will is a Christian as well. Um, but we, uh, you know, the people that uh, part of our audience are from all over the political spectrum and the faith spectrum. And I think that, uh, you know, in our culture, it feels like, or even, even amongst Christians, it's either like when we're describing, you know, what happened in the first century AD, where, where it's either like, we're talking about faith and it has to be statements of faith or it's like, or it's just like extreme or like, it's all made up or, you know, you just get these, all these crazy extremes when it comes to this, instead of just being able to have like a conversation where like, yeah, you know, like Jesus was a person that existed and here's the evidence we have for him. And here's what we think he meant by that. And, you know, um, and, and here's what we think about that. Uh, people get really tied up in it. I don't know. Have you experienced that in your classroom a lot? Oh, I, I, I never experienced anything like that in my classes because I'm so frightening a figure in my classes. <laughs> that I, you know, it's, it's the tyranny, the czar of the classroom, you know. Um, but no, I mean, I'm pretty straightforward and upfront with students about what happens in a classroom is different from what happens in a church. A church has rules of discourse, you know, that you, you know, that there's the witness of faith, there's the witness of one's life, there's the, you know, the, the probity of one's, uh, of one's existence. In the academy, it's evidence and rules of logic and, and so forth. And once students understand that they're in a different social setting, and that the social setting of the church is different from the social setting of the academy, it gets a little bit easier to talk to each other. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, um, I, uh, one of the things that, um, that I was, uh, that I've been so fascinated about, um, even like about how, like you've done your work and again, the great courses is you have a, a really amazing ability to engage with the culture. Um, like it seems like some people on one hand, you know, they they can only operate in the realm of theology. Right. Um, and it seems other people can only operate in the realm of total culture and cultural relevance. But it seems like you strike a, a good balance, in my opinion, of we got to engage with the culture. You have to, you know, um, meet the culture where they are. And you're very just your ability to talk with, uh, again, describe how Christianity came about and things like that in a way that anyone can listen to. Um, and, and really, um, and it really like, uh, uh, what, what's the word I'm looking for? It's an ability to, it's a compelling to make people think about these questions. Um, I thought was, was, was really cool. And, you know, um, uh, both Will and I, we have different stories. You know, I grew up as a, I grew up in a pastor's home, very conservative, um, very home, you know, homogeneous in terms of thinking. And, um, you know, it was like, uh, in all my beliefs were, you know, it was very monolithic growing up. And I love my parents, but I had very limited 
you know, I, I went to, you know, public school, but I had very limited exposure to any other religions or anything like that. Right. It was kind of like intentionally. So, but Will had a different, a different uh, way of growing up. And he even had many, many years of skepticism. And I know he has a question that um, he wanted to bring to you, but it's uh, I'm going to let him go ahead and do that. But we have diverse backgrounds. It's going to be cool to hear uh, your answers. Yeah. Uh, and in and, and short, you know, I, I wasn't always a Christian. I call it my BC days, my before Christ days. And, um, you know, my journey to Christianity was sort of a, a tough road to hoe. Um, and a lot of the doubts I had was because I just didn't think that a lot of the things in the Bible were true. So I'm I'm curious. I'm like, what what would you say to a rebellious me 20 years ago? <laughs> you know, that that would that would help change my mind. I I um I I think the answer to those kinds of questions which are very difficult questions right are have 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 much more to do with um really listening to why you were so rebellious and 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 what was really going on in your life because you can't give an answer to a question that's not formed and 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 so in, in some sense, when you're struggling and searching and you're angry and you're pushing back against something, you don't want to hear anything, really. Um, and so I think the it, it, but if let's say we had a real conversation together, let's say that we could sit down and have a um, a soft drink together and, and talk for a while, you know, I, I think that if if you said to me. I can't take this Christianity stuff because so much it's in the Bible just is not true. And I would try to begin to ask with you, well, what do we mean when we say something is true? Hmm. Um, Because there's a difference between saying that this uh, um, scientific experiment reveals the truth about something There's a difference between that and the language we use for that, or this is an actual historical fact. We may not like Trump, but he was a historical fact. Trump is a historical fact. Those are kinds of truth, right? What kind of truth is there in the statement? I love you, or I'm going to be faithful to you, or I forgive you. Those are statements that can't be verified, right? And uh, uh, what I would try to help you see is that a lot of what we have in Scripture is that kind of truth, right? It's not, did Jesus walk on water? It's, in Jesus was God at work to lift humanity to a new condition. Hmm. And that's a much bigger truth, right? That makes the walking on the water kind of trivial, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't have to show that my mama bake, baked eight pies a day and still make the statement my mother was a really caring woman. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So, so the notion of truth, um, and this isn't to just wave away everything and wave away historical fact and so but we get hung up on the historical Hmm. not realizing that history is a very limited way of knowing things this Hmm. 
there's a whole lot that history can't get at, right? And in everyday conversation, in politics especially, you're the politics man, right? Yes. <laughs> in politics, you might you you know this more than I do. We get away with these generalizations, right? The lesson of Vietnam. Oh, well, what the hell was the lesson of Vietnam? <laughs> right? You know, or the lesson of Munich and and or the Normandy invasion. And so you, you take, you know, the experience of thousands and thousands and thousands of people and you put them in a little movie clip. Mm-hmm. And then you say, I got this little clip and I can move it over here and I can move it over there. And I never have to think about it again. So history is very tricky. And a lot of people who, by the way, grew up in very conservative religious backgrounds, tended to identify truth with historical accuracy. Yes. What the Bible said was true in the sense that things happened exactly the way the Bible said they did. And young kid like you growing up said, well, that's bullshit. I can't accept that. <laughs> right. Cause you know, it doesn't happen that way. But so somewhere in the middle, there's a kind of a grown up mature hmm. grasp of what truth is really about. And it's not about facts. It's about um, the, It's about pointing to reality, right? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there, Josh Bertram here, faithful host of the Faithful Politics Podcast. I want to let you know about a compelling new spinoff, the Faith Roundtable, where I'll be interviewing top faith leaders, theologians, and scholars to unpack the pressing issues that are shaping the church in America today. We'll dive into topics like faith and public life, social justice, and how we can engage our communities more effectively. Make sure you don't miss any of our enlightening conversations by subscribing to it on our YouTube channel. Join me at the Faith Roundtable, where deep discussion meets thoughtful insight. Mm, wow, um, that that that's awesome. And I wish I'd met you 20 years ago. Um, <laughs> um, so, but, but to, to, to back up just a little bit, sure. how, how did, how did you, how did you kind of get into the, the field that you're in? I mean, like, did you always n- know as a child, you wanted to be a expert on new Testament <laughs> and, and no. Bible and stuff? <laughs> no, what I wanted to be was a saint. <laughs> I, I, my, I was an orphan. Um, my daddy died when I was six weeks old. My father, my mother died when I was 11. But she was a woman of profound faith. And uh, when I was 13, I went off to a seminary, and then I joined a Benedictine monastery, and I was a monk for 10 years. Wow. So, And my goal was to be um, a transformed person, uh, you know, a person who... Um, uh, honored God. And as it happened, the monastic community I belonged to was a scholarly community. And so I got into the study of scripture and the study of 
Christian history and all of these things as part of my monastic upbringing. And, and then when I left the monastery in very scandalous form, I, I ran off with a divorced woman with six children. Oh, my. Um, and then we had a seventh child. And so I wasn't exactly persona grata with the ecclesiastical <laughs> authorities, right, for a long time. Um, but um, so I was kind of a purposeful seeker after God, but an accidental scholar. Because mm. once I left the monastery, I had to make a living, right? So I, I you know, <laughs> finished my PhD and started teaching. Yes. You know, that I, it's really cool to hear a little bit about your faith journey there. And your woman, I mean, your your mother was a woman. Know, perfect, woman. You're not your that woman. Was a, that was a good Freudian. That was, yeah, that was a good slip. <laughs> I swear I'm not uh, <laughs> a uh, misogynist, okay? Um, but so, you know, one of the things that has been really interesting to me and i know will we have a we have a group that um on facebook that's associated with the podcast and and he posted and and, and wanted to see if anyone had any questions and also um, posted about kind of your stance that you've come to on the lgbtq community uh -huh. and on on same-sex marriage and what um and i want to summarize it what i want to do is summarize kind of what i understand your argument to be, and then ask you um, to kind of take us to your hermeneutical methodology, meaning the way, you know, I know you know what that means, but the way that, you know. I'm not so sure you know what it means. <laughs> I, I may not know what that means. Um, oh, that's true. <laughs> um, but how do uh, I get there is what you're asking. Yes. How you get there. Yes. Right. Um and help us like move through that. Uh, so, so what the, what the idea is, or what I understood is that there are two kind of major things where you felt like, like uh, in particular with same sex union, same sex marriage, they should be fully incorporated and brought into the church um, on one hand and correct me, you know, you'll have plenty of time to correct me sure. uh, on, on everything I get wrong about it, about what you're saying. Um, and then the second thing is that, um, those in the LGBTQ community should be fully endorsed to be priests or pastors or be in full-time ministry, things like that. And the reasoning was about two things, basically the trajectory of inclusion that we find in the new Testament and then the 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 relevance of how the Holy Spirit speaks to us today. So the trajectory of of inclusion starting in the New Testament, something right. like Galatians, which says there's neither male nor female, right. um, Jew or Greek, things like that, um, or Jew or Gentile, or and then the um, and then the Holy Spirit speaking to us today and bringing a new light, almost. I, I I don't I, I won't try to say exactly what it is. I'll let you you bring that out. But what, no, how I did you come to good, this place? I think you've done a good a good summary actually, and um, I I think you caught my first position very well. That is uh, the full inclusion of uh, gay and lesbian folk in the community. The issue of ordination. I don't actually have a 
a positive position on because okay. I think it's so difficult. Um, and you, the, because you're, then you begin to talk about the sacramental character of the body and mm. representative character of the ministry and blah, blah, blah. And this is really hard. It's sure. much harder. It's much harder in terms of leadership within the community than it is to, you can be a part of the community. That's, that's a separate step. And in all yes, of I this, understand. in all of this, it doesn't give uh, a tinker's damn what I think. Um, you know, I mean, it's the old line about opinions, right? I mean, what are they worth? Um, but what I, I think what I have tried to offer is a way of arguing responsibly about it. And so you're quite right. Um, the, the one thing that everybody notes in my position or what I've said in public and in writing, I'm very clear. Scripture is totally against homosexuality. There's no wiggle room there. Um, it's, there's not a single speck of, oh, let's welcome gay people. And, and partly this is because there was no such thing as homosexuality back then. What there was was a lot of bisexuality. Hmm. Um, there were a lot of married men hmm. also had male lovers, right? We don't know anything about lesbianism because obviously women were not writing and so forth. So, but in terms of male behavior, what you really had was something quite different than what we would call a gay orientation, you know, that is exclusive, that is lifelong, that is, you know, erotic um, as such. Um, so there is that difference. But nevertheless, if you're looking for scripture to say, hey, it's okay to include gay people. Scripture does not say that. And we have to be very honest about that. Hmm. So that if we're going to include others who are really other, then we have to, as you say, do two things. Derive implications from what is already in Scripture about inclusion. And it's the statements in Paul on the one side, but above all, the statements in the Acts of the Apostles about the inclusion of the Gentiles without requiring them to become Jews. This was the most important decision hmm. because it gave us a model of how do you go against Scripture? Because all of Scripture said, sure, Gentiles can become part of the people of God. They just have to get circumcised. Right. And they have to become Jews, right? Right. And, and the early church said, no, they can be included as Gentiles. Hmm. That is, as filthy and deranged and so forth, <laughs> if they've received the Holy Spirit, right? Hmm. So that's a kind of different way of reading Scripture. It's a way of reading narratives in Scripture as examples that we might imitate. Okay, so that's on one side. The other side is, how did the church know how to do that? How did the church in the first generation decide against all scripture precedent, we're going to let Gentiles in with no green card, right? Mm. And, well, one reason is, is because they regarded Jesus as Lord, and scripture said, you can't have a Lord 
who was a crucified criminal. Hmm. And, and, and so already in Paul, they're working out the fact that by the, by the norms of Scripture, Jesus can't be the Messiah. Because Deuteronomy, Scripture says, cursed be everyone who hangs on a tree. Yes. And Jesus mm-hmm. inarguably was hanged upon a tree. Yes. He's cursed by God. He's not the Messiah. He's not. So Christian said, oh, but so Paul says, nobody can say Jesus is Lord unless they have the Holy Spirit. And nobody in the Holy Spirit can say Jesus be cursed. Ah. Hmm. So the very foundation of Christianity is paying attention to the Holy Spirit. Even when it puts us in tension with Scripture. Hmm. Right? So Jesus as Messiah, inclusion of the Gentiles. Our pay, our, our, four, our forebears did a pretty good job, right? in getting to the essentials. So I say, let's take some more recent precedents. In the 1850s in my state, Georgia, we had intense debates between abolitionists and slaveholders with regard to the biblical support for slaveholders. And by God, the slaveholders beat the spit out of the abolitionists abolitionist because everything in scripture seems to point to it's fine to have slaves. Abraham had slaves. The patriarchs had slaves, right? Mm-hmm. Jesus never brings it up. Paul says slaves be obedient to men. Well, if you're arguing just from scripture, right? Hmm. So poor abolitionists, all they had was maybe Philemon and, and Galatians 3.28. That was it. <laughs> Right? That's not, a, that's not a lot. But what did the abolitionists argue on? On the basis of human experience. Slaves mm. are not property. They're humans. Right? And that's why Uncle Tom's Cabin is one of the greatest pieces of propaganda ever composed. Remember Abraham Lincoln said to Harriet Beecher Stowe, so you're the little lady who started this great big war? Be- why? Because Harriet Beecher Stowe made readers, millions of them, in the United States and England, to see American slaves as persons. And once they were regarded as persons and not property, then, right? Then the Christian law of love. Inclusion and took a long time to get it laid out, but it could get started. So, same thing with 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 women, right? The New Testament says, "Women, shut up, sit down, you know, be submissive to your husbands." They, you can't talk in church. So, what have we learned from the experience of the spirit working in people's lives is that women are strong, are powerful, can lead, right? And so we, we stand in tension with scripture. Hmm. I think, I think that's like really awesome. And my, as my, my oldest would say, I've got a little one, seven named Jericho. And 
he he always talks about his head exploding when I tell him like <laughs> like new things, and I feel like my head's exploding. <laughs> right. Um, and uh, I'm I I I love how you just sort of unpack all that and kind of tear down a lot of the legalism that like I had always kind of thought Christianity was all about. Um, you know, going back to my early skepticism twenty years ago, like the, these are the types of conversations that would have been healthy for me to to hear. Because like, I just had sort of, I viewed Christianity kind of through a straw, you know, versus like something bigger. So, right. um, but when I, when I'm curious though, just kind of going back to the LGBTQ thing is, is I'd love to kind of get your thoughts on like, what, why do you think that particular issue is like, so I don't know, like, like ubiquitous and all the sort of political talk. I mean, it, that there, there's like, if you're going to be a Christian, you have to be opposed to LGBTQ and you have to go bomb abortion clinics or something, you know, like that, th- right. those seem to be the two big things. So I'm curious on why LGBTQ issues seems to be the big, the big hangup. Uh, that's really a, a terrific question. And I really wish I had an answer. Um, part of it is deflection. Part of it is a kind of scapegoating and then the resentment at being scapegoated. Let me explain. Nobody would argue, I think, no Christian would argue that there is kind of a pandemic of sexual disorder in our culture, right? I mean, prostitution, white slavery, right? Uh, Pornography. Um, the sexualization of children, um, abuse, sexual abuse, I mean, you go on and on and on. <clears throat> you look at uh, portrayals in records and in art and in advertising and so forth. And you say, oh, my Lord, our children are being sexualized by the time they're seven, eight years old. Right. Um, so and and you sort of say, well, we have this this. A pervasive pansexual disorder. Who's doing all that? Is it them damn Muslims? No, it's not lesbian Jews. It's white male Christians, so-called Christians, for the most part. But nobody will stand up in a pulpit and talk about that. I mean, it, it's sort of the elephant in the room. So the people, the LGBT, I always get the initials wrong. Anyhow, in that, that group, resent being like the scapegoat while everything else is being ignored, right? Because for the most part, I mean, you've got gay pride parades and you've got silly things and so forth. But for the most part, one of the one of the greatest supports of marriage in our culture is among gay people. Astonishingly, most gay people want to be married. I mean, that was what I was because they wanted to be normal. They wanted to be they didn't want to be, you know, flaming queens or whatever. They wanted mm-hmm. to be ordinary people living ordinary lives. Now. The politics of this are very interesting because we have a tendency to focus on the small and manageable deviants 
or what do we regard as deviance, and exclusively focus on that. So we can focus on the border, or we can focus on you know uh, Wall Street, or we can focus on that, and it becomes obsessive, right? And one of the things that people quite fairly point out is that scripture itself is astonishingly uninterested in sex. Really. I mean, if you took out Leviticus 17, you you practically have nothing. Scripture is really interested in economics. What scripture really calls people to account about is cheating and stealing and robbing widows and moving landmarks and growing rich at the expense of the destitute. Mm. So two kinds of deflection, one from the kinds of real sexual disorders in our culture and two away from the stuff that we all collude in, which is making money no matter what the consequences of it. I don't know if that's responsive to your question or not. No, that's, that's perfect. I, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to memorize everything you just said and just use that in conversations all the time. Now. Get your talking points out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, there's, go, go. but there's also, I was thinking about this today and, and this is a little bit, we've also experienced in our culture, a kind of a drift in the language of rights. Um, it, it formerly rights language tended to be correlated with responsibility language. You had a right to vote because you had a responsibility to vote, right? You had a right to discipline your children because it was your responsibility to raise your children. Slowly, rights languages have kind of slipped into privilege area. So I have a right to be whoever I want to be. I have a right to make sure you call me what I want to be called. Right. I have a right to have my body changed on a whim. I have a right for the state to support this. No, no, nobody has those rights because they're not they're not correlated to any responsibility. Mm. It's just all privilege. I'm sorry, I'm rattling on. No, no, it's so fascinating. I mean, I I mean, I I, I actually really, really agree with what you're saying. Um, there's this this uh the shift in our culture. And you know, one of the things that you know so for me, I'm very much in I, you know, I was I was educated at um very conservative college. Um, I was, uh, I went to Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary, which I really, I really loved. And then I spent some time in Drew University, which was very different than Gordon Conwell. And I was very, yes, very, it was. Yeah, it's very different, very different. Um, I was talking about that this morning with a friend and, and my reaction against um, kind of what I, what I saw like as a, uh, almost as the gospel being like, um, almost uh, denigrated or, or deteriorated with some of the views that I saw. And I, I got into this like dichotomy where it was basically, if you went one direction, you were going to end up being, 
you know, essentially unorthodox. And so there's only two roads, the super conservative road or the progressive road that leads you down to a place where you're denying the resurrection and, yeah. and all these different things. So for me, um, one of the things that I've been, I, I, I'm wrestling with, I'd love to get your thoughts on this is, you know, we have, so, so we, in order to have constructive conversation about something, you have to have some common ground, right? Otherwise you're just not even, um, as a, to use a metaphor, a friend told me, uh, was telling me this morning, like you're not even playing the same game unless you have some kind of common ground. You're not even going to play by the same rules. You might not even be playing the same game. Right. And so when it comes to taking scripture, understanding it, and then applying it today, what I learned as you go, you, you, you understand what it said, historical, you know, the historical gr- grammatical method, you understand what it said, you understand what it means, and then you bring it to what it means today. Um, and then that's a very straightforward application. Like I can understand what Paul said, I can go and I can get it. And then I can take that principle and I can apply it to my life. Not only can I do that, I should do that. No, you shouldn't. And no, you can't. Okay. So this is getting to where my, my, what, what I wanted to get your thoughts on. About my hermeneutic. Yes. What's going and And how do we find common, how do you and I come to the place where, where's our common ground in right. biblical interpretation that allows for constructive conversation? Well, first of all, let me comment on your, on, on your sad tale of going from Gordon Conwell to Drew. Uh, <laughs> No, yeah, because it really points to a, a dramatic and tragic situation in the uh, in American culture, and that is that we we've made this divide between the heart and the mind, so that to be smart, you can't be faithful. Hmm. To be faithful, you can't be smart. Hmm. And so, you know, people who are deeply faithful tend to be suspicious of intelligence. Hmm. People who are highly intelligent despise faithfulness. <laughs> and so a school of theology, which ought to be a place where heart and mind inter- interact, yes. um, it, it tends to be either like at Gordon-Conwell, deeply conservative, or at Drew, hyper-liberal. And, and, and we can't, it's very difficult for us to find a place. Okay, let me go back to what, why I so rudely interrupted you. <laughs> when you had this marvelous unilinear kind of movement from Paul to you, your good buddy, Paul. And your good buddy, Paul. Your good buddy, Paul. No, it has to be a dialectic, and that's what people miss. Hmm. It's not, yes, we can read Scripture and understand it grammatically, syntactically, historically, anthropologically, sociologically, and so forth. We know what it said. We don't necessarily know what it means or what it signifies. Hmm. For that, we need to analyze our human situation as fully as we do the text of Scripture. Okay? Hmm. So very often, people go running to Scripture for an answer when they really haven't formulated the question very well. Hmm. So, for example, a very early book of mine was called Sharing Possessions, What Faith Demands. Well, I began by saying, what do we mean when we say we own something? What does it mean to, what what does rich mean? What does poor mean? What does middle class mean? Okay, these are all very slippery terms. Hmm. Politicians use them to beat each other over the head 
But if we want to read scripture responsibly, we should have some notion about what it means to be and to have something, right? It's, it's a very complex thing. I am a body and I have a body. True? Yes. Yes, true. Okay. So um, what so often we do, so we say, what does scripture have to say about marriage? As though marriage in the first century was identical to marriage in the 21st century. Mm. And they're not alike at all. <laughs> and so part of our problem is that we haven't constructed the conversation partner. Hmm. We haven't done enough work on economics, on culture, on marriage, on friendship, on relationships, right? In order to responsibly interact with what Paul or another author is saying in scripture. And that requires just as much exegesis, to use a term you learned at Gordon-Conwell. Yes. The exegesis, I, I gave a talk at Princeton uh, many years ago in which the title was, The Point of Exegesis is Exegeting Life. Hmm. And, and so what use is it to know what Scripture says unless you can it can help you exegete what life is about, right? So it goes back and forth, back and forth. Now, the problem with many contemporaries, they just want to have the present. And they say, Scripture doesn't agree with it. Screw Scripture, hmm. right? And then you have a lot of conservative people who say, this is what Scripture says. It doesn't agree with what we're doing. So we'll stop reading Scripture. No. <laughs> well, we have to, you know, we, we have to be condemned uh, by Scripture. Uh, and, and, and the thing is, is that it's not easy. There's too much simplistic stuff going on, right? Really. Um, we just don't have, we don't, ah, any, I let it, let it go at that. But I, I would say there has to be a dialogue or a dialectic between the present and scripture. And, and not just the present and scripture, but the whole tradition of the church. We're not the first people to read scripture. There's 2,000 mm -hmm. years of scriptural interpretation and, and the interpretation of Christian life. I mean, there are libraries full of this stuff, which most people don't read. Right? <laughs> we might get a little help yes. from the saints yeah. before us. Yeah. Now, so, so I guess kind of moving towards politics a little bit with, um, you know, I, I don't know if this is just a phenomenon of the last four years or not, but it does seem like there's this rise in this like Christian nationalism um, in this country. Some of it, which, you know, sort of showed its face, you know, at the, the insurrection at the Capitol. And there's also sort of this like blending of, of QAnon <laughs> and like the Christian community. And, and I, and I love to kind of just get your, get your thoughts about, you know, what, what, what concerns you, um, about, you know, the kind of like this new politics of religion, um, and, you know, all the different things it's, it's prompting 
folks like in in the Christian community to to do and stand for? And like, is it is it like perverting our our faith? You know, I I'd, I'd just love to kind of just get get your thoughts on that. I don't know anything about QAnon and and or any of much of any of that kind of stuff. Um, but I can say this, I think, uh, responsibly. I, I I think that similar to the issue about like with the gay and lesbians overreaction to being scapegoated. A lot of what is happening among um, conservative Christians or and conservative, let's say, let's just call them Republican Party members, because that's who they are, is that this, what, what you would regard and I would regard as an unfortunate marriage between nationalism and Christianity is a reaction to um, what is perceived to be an irreligious despising of the country. So in other words, that combination is on both sides. So in the halls of academe, where I labored for 50 years as a self-despising professional, because I thought I saw all of this stuff happening around me and there's not much I could do you know, the growth of political correctness and all of this stuff and the loss of scholarly integrity. Um, in the halls of academe, uh, you can't find a Republican, not in the liberal arts. At Emory, where I taught, in the liberal arts, you can't find a Republican. Hmm. And, and in the sciences, you can't. But the, the dominant ethos is so much one of debunking religion and debunking nationalism or patriotism, whatever you want to call it, right? Our country is horrible. I mean, what has been the dominant curricular motif in political science for the last 50 years, since the 60s, is America is a savage and evil country. And so we need to be globalists. We need to globalization. We need a world state. We need all of these things. So that there is perceived that the enlightenment critique of religion has been divorced from the enlightenment embrace of a national character. And so in reaction to what is regarded as being a despised deplorable because you believe in God and you want to fly the flag, you have the development of a lot of this very unfortunate, extreme, because you have crazies, right? <laughs> yeah. And, but, but they're not wrong in their perception of how they're being othered. And so what you have in this country is almost half the population being othered by the other half. And what happens when you're othered? You grow extreme. Yeah. You're angry. Yeah. You know, you, and, and, and you, you, know, you, you, uh, you act out, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so I think that's a lot of what's happening. And so I don't. I don't subscribe to any of this stuff. I don't, I don't like any kind of riots. I don't like destruction of property. I don't like violence. I don't like, uh, you know, any of this stuff. 
but I understand it as a kind of a cultural phenomenon, which is not spontaneous combustion, (laughs) right? It's, it's, it's a reaction to a long tendency in academia, entertainment, media, and government to never address religion, never address faith in any kind of positive way, and increasingly have the same, what shall I call it? Uh, I can't find the right word, I'm sorry. (laughs) I don't want to use the word, but a, a supercilious attitude toward more naive displays of patriotism. And people who have flown the flag on 4th of July on their front lawn every day for the last 40 years don't like to be despised for doing that. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, I don't know anything my, about you and on that. I don't know what that is. Yeah, it's okay. You're, you're, you're better for it. I think um, that's right. Like, yeah. <laughs> the, uh, the, the, the last question I have, um, it, it, it may seem kind of like a silly question, but it's something that um, I've, I've kind of thought a little bit about, um, and that's regarding um, aliens and UFOs. <laughs> so uh-huh. the, uh, this, this month, uh, reportedly, we're supposed to be receiving an unclassified document from Congress about like, the existence of UFOs or, or what have you. And, uh, and, I, and I've always kind of thought more, more of a fun thought exercise about like, what would that mean for my faith if the existence of aliens, you know, on a faraway planet or whatever were, were real. And I, and I would love to kind of get your scholarly input on like, how, how would that, how would that fit, you know, into, into sort of, you know, the, the, the bigger Bible story and, and what God's doing. You mean the smaller Bible story? The smaller Bible story. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, it was a wonderful book by, um, shoot, I forget her name now, um, called a big enough faith or large mm-hmm. enough faith. And it began with um, uh, Heisenberg's indeterminacy principle and you know quantum physics and indeterminacy. And, and her argument was that this should invite us to a, a larger appreciation of God's possibilities, right? Um, just as before Galileo and Copernicus, uh, Christianity was comfortable with a... a uh, um, an Earth-centric universe, right? And and had to explode into a heliocentric universe and and understand that we're in movement, just like all this stuff. So all that stuff is the same thing, I think, with God's capacity to have created other worlds, right? Um, and other uh, and and. And what's important about this is that in our arrogance, we kind of assume that the game that God has played with us is the only game that God can play. Hmm. And this is, this is really important because it's clear that God is playing a different game with Jews than with Christians and a different game with Muslims than with Christians. And we're not in a position to say, that's not a good game. 
That's a terrible game. God doesn't approve of that. That's God's business and their business, right? We are Christian because that's the game that we play. We're like baseball players. We can't kick no football, right? <laughs> so it's the same thing with this, this bigger world of aliens and so forth. But what amuses me, Will, is this. People who say, how can you talk about angels, right? Are quite willing to talk about aliens, right? <laughs> or even more so, Richard Dawkins, who, you know, one of those most can talk about a selfish gene, right? Who's ever seen a gene? Much less <laughs> one with a personality, right? So you can dismiss the Archangel Gabriel, but you can believe in the selfish gene, right? Plain fact is, this goes back to our conversation about history. It applies to science as well. Our human capacity for cognition is very limited. Yes. There's a whole lot more in the world than we can know or control. What we need to do is to chill our engines a little bit and sort of say, God is great. God is good. And whatever God creates is good. Mm. I love that answer. Um, you know, I want to ask you a question that's an unanswerable question. Sure, um, I'm good at and, those. Yeah, no, I, I can tell. You, <laughs> you're really good at those. I love it. I have it. a non-answer for every non-question. <laughs> so so this, uh, this question is, um, let's do a thought experiment, experiment and imagine that, uh, that Jesus came here today, um, the Messiah that God had waited another 2,000 years. Um, if you know that in the fullness of time in 2000, and I guess let's just say he was 35, like my age, you know, 1985 in the fullness well, of hell, time. you're a good candidate. So <laughs> I got a beard. I got everything. Got uh, I haven't been sinless though. I'll tell you that much, yeah. uh, just depending on what you think. So anyway, um, how do you think yeah. Jesus and the apostle Paul, the writers of the new Testament, again, knowing the diversity there and understanding that. Um, how do you think they would respond to our current political situation? Oh, boy. Again, an unanswerable question, but I think it'll come up with some cool, some cool <laughs> thoughts. I, I, uh, I, I actually think that Jesus would probably say and do the same things he did then. Hmm. Um, Jesus didn't discourse about the Roman Empire. Yeah. He didn't talk about the temple hierarchy. He went about touching people and allowing them to touch him. Hmm. And, he, and he stated this most remarkable countercultural set of principles. Hmm. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Yeah. Blessed are those who grieve. And then woe to you who are rich. <laughs> woe to you who have your comfort now, right? Yeah. Woe to you who are popular because that so were the old prophets popular, false prophets. And then he says, you know, don't just give to your friends, give to your enemies. Yeah. Love your enemies. 
This stuff is still hot. It's still incredibly radical. Yes. And it, it builds from the human touch, the human voice. You know, that of all the ancient figures that we know about, and we know about quite a few of them, Jesus is the most remarkably accessible. He ate with everybody. He was approached by everybody. He noticed children. Nobody noticed children in antiquity. Nobody, yeah. Much less said the way you receive children is the way that you receive God's rule. As though your openness to receiving a child is your openness to receiving God's rule. Okay, cut to the chase. Totally as radical. Hmm. Totally as disinterested as what happens in the Beltway. <laughs> right? Yes. And, and you touch this person, that person touches another. It grows. And I think, I don't really think that his message would change. I don't really think his motive, he sure as hell wouldn't get on Twitter. <laughs> and you couldn't get Jesus for a blog. That's that's one of the many ways in which I'm not like Jesus. So you think <laughs> Jesus could would would he could he heal through tweets? You don't think he would do that? He he would that heal he would through what? tweets. Heal through now tweets. You, now you're just being silly. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I think um I mean, it, it actually is a serious question because yeah. I, I, I do think that one of the unintended consequences of social media and all of this stuff, and part of it is marvelous. It enables a conversation between three people, you yes. know, who otherwise would not meet each other. Yes. But a lot of it is um, deranged. Yeah. And unhealthy. And I don't think Jesus would be seduced by that. Hmm. Uh, I don't think he would be a virtual Messiah. Hmm. And this is what we're losing. Wow. We're losing the sense of embodiedness, wow. of the importance of body. And the pandemic really hurt us in that yes. respect. It really hurt us because it, it gave us this sense, well, maybe we can do this all on Zoom, you know, yeah. and we can't. Yeah. You can't. We can do some things. Yes. But you can't you can't uh comfort your son, William, on Zoom. Yeah. Right? You have to hold yeah. him. You yeah. have to hold him. And I don't think those things change. Yeah. Um Luke, I I, I this will be my last question. I know I said the last question was my last question, but there there's something that just came out and he kind of hit my my news feed and I and I wanted to just get your quick hot take on it. Um and it's in regards to um US Catholic bishops passing a controversial proposal on communion specifically um you know against like politicians namely Biden um you know for for his stances on you know on abortion yeah. and uh and I'm curious to kind of just get your, you know, quick reaction on that and kind of what your, what your thoughts are. Um, I think quick reactions are always problematic. Um, <laughs> I, 
I, I need to think about it a bit, but I, I mean, let, mm -hmm. me, let me state a principle. Mm -hmm. um, if you have a club that's serious, it's going to have rules. And if it's a club that's really serious, if you don't keep the rules, then you're going to be kicked out or excluded from some of the activities of the club, right? You cheated at golf. You can't play golf here anymore. So without getting into the particulars, I think that fundamentally the bishops have a right to do this whether it's politic, whether it's prudent, whether it is helpful, um, I can't judge. But I will say that um, there has been, and in, I'm a case in point, where I claim the identity of Catholicism, and yet I broke every rule under the sun, right, to get to where I am. Now, I've repented of breaking all those rules, but nevertheless, and I was excommunicated. Mm -hmm. I was excommunicated for 20 years. Wow. Because wow. I left the monastery and married a divorced woman. I say, fair game. You know, that's, those are the rules. I'm not going to say that, oh, those are wrong rules. No. I broke the rules you take. Take your punishment. Then eventually, Joy's first husband died. She was no longer divorced. Blah, 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 blah. We could rectify things. All very legalistic. <laughs> but the point is that I didn't cavil at the church's right to throw me out. <laughs> because <laughs> otherwise... Otherwise, you become that kind of weak broth that's, that's so much of mainline Protestantism. Hmm. It's like, well, we're so eager to keep our membership rolls up that we'll allow any damn thing. <laughs> as long as they tithe, though. Oh, yeah. That's my only rule. That's right. That's important. So here, here's the last, here's the last question we have for today, and it's been such a. That was Will's last question. I, it, you know, <laughs> you guys keep on upping the last question thing. I uh, know, okay. no. Here, here's the truth. Here's the last question one. for the day, and All here, right. here it is. We have a lot of different people that listen to this podcast. Um, you know, atheists, uh, Christians, Muslims. We've had a lot of different guests from different viewpoints um that's what something that we take pride in we want to do that um so what do you think is one thing and you can keep it as concise as you as you want what's one thing that you would want to say to the listeners that you think is just really important for them to hear from you today I think that um, of all the things that we talked about today, I think that um, I would like to put on the banner, it is possible to be deeply faithful to God and to be as smart as hell. 
That is excellent. It's going on a t-shirt. That's good. <laughs> he will makes t-shirts. Just another Irishman. <laughs> he can make one and send it to you. Well, guys, thank mm-hmm. you again. This has been um, Dr. Luke Timothy Johnson, um, and he uh, taught at Emory and uh, professor of New Testament um, studies and Christian origins. And thank you so much, Luke, for coming on with thank us you. today. Yeah, that's it's awesome. It's such a me. pleasure. And guys, we will talk to you uh, next week. We have some other cool guests and setting topics coming up. So stay tuned and we will see you later. Thanks. God bless. Right, bye. Bye. Bye.